podcast it's me your host big mark if it's your first time watching welcome if not welcome back like i always say if you ever wanted to reach out to the podcast let us know about any topics any questions anything like that hit us up on our dms at the big mark pod at the big mark podcast on our twitter on our instagram if you ever want to donate to the podcast check out our patreon patreon.com that's the big mark pod if you are watching on youtube like i mentioned uh, hit our hit the subscribe button so you get subscribed to our channel. You know when the new videos are coming out. Like the video, make a comment. Welcome again to the community. The best thing you could ever do for our podcast is give us a, a good rating. So hit up wherever you are listening to the podcast and uh, and give us a five star review if you can. That'd be awesome. Again, thank you for your time. Really appreciate uh, everyone taking the time out of their day whether it's morning afternoon evening or night wherever you may be in the world to be here with us today um i really appreciate it and you know in light of all these uh all this barbenheimer uh magic happening i kind of thought i'd do a couple couple episodes kind of surrounding some of that stuff and you know maybe a little bit of the subject matter um Today's obviously a little bit more to do with the Oppenheimer movie, Christopher Nolan's joint that's coming, um, or that sorry that is now out in theaters. If you're if you're listening to this now, um, as of July twenty, what's today? July twenty fifth, twenty twenty three. So Oppenheimer's in theaters, and if you're listening to this in the future. Who knows how how deep into the future, but this is when Oppenheimer was in theaters. And who knows, it might go down as one of the great uh, Nolan, uh, Christopher Nolan movies. I haven't heard too much about it, to, to be honest, because I've been avoiding hearing too much about it. Because I do want to see, I want to see it fresh. I do want to see Barbie and Oppenheimer in the same day. I'm going to do it. I don't give a fuck. And it's going to be awesome. But, like I said... Today's uh, today's episode is obviously going to be a little bit more to do with Oppenheimer today because we're going to be talking about the Manhattan Project. And I kind of wanted to open things up today because I found this unbelievable quote. It's part of a little bit longer eyewitness account um, uh, by New York Times science reporter William Lawrence uh, who accompanied the men who dropped the bomb on Nagasaki and uh, and wrote the eyewitness account below. Now, without getting too far in, into it, um, you know, the Manhattan Project was the the, uh, the U.S.-led project to create the atomic bombs. But we'll get into that in a second. So William Lawrence writes, We are on our way to bomb the mainland of Japan. Our flying contingent consists of three specially designed B-29 superforts, and two of these carry no bombs but our lead plane is on his way with another atomic bomb. The second in, th in three days, concentrating its active substance and explosive energy equivalent to 20,000 and under favorable conditions, 40,000 tons of TNT. We took off at three, we took off at 350 this morning and headed, I think it's th 300 hours. No. Anyway, we took off at 350 this morning and headed northwest on a straight line for the Empire. 
The night was cloudy and threatening, with only a few stars here and there breaking through the overcast. The weather report had predicted storms ahead ahead part of the way, but clear sailing for the final and climatic stages of our odyssey. It is a thing of beauty to behold this gadget in its design, went millions of man-hours of what is of what is without a doubt the most concentrated intellectual effort in history. Never before had so much brain power been focused on a single problem. By 5.50, it was real light outside. We had lost our lead ship, but Lieutenant Leonard Godfrey, our navigator, informs me that we had arranged for that contingency. We have an assembly point in the sky above the little island of Yakoshima, southwest of Kyushu, in, at 9.10. Assembly points, like, where you're going to kind of, like, meet up in the sky in uh, flying terms, I guess. Uh, We are to circle there and wait for the rest of our formation. Our genial bombardier, Lieutenant Charles Levy, comes comes over to invite me to, to take his front row seat in the transparent nose of the ship. And I accept eagerly. From that vantage point in space, 17,000 feet above the Pacific, one gets a view of hundreds of miles on all sides, horizontally and vertically. At that height, the vast ocean below and the sky above seem to merge into one great sphere. I, on the inside of that firmament, firmament, riding above the giant mountains of white cumulus clouds, letting myself be suspended in infinite space. One hears the whirl of the motors behind one, but soon becomes insignificant against the immensity all around and is before long swallowed by it. There comes a point where space also swallows time, and one lives through eternal moments filled with an oppressive loneliness, as though all life has suddenly vanished from the earth and you are the only one left, a lone survivor traveling endlessly through interplanetary space. We reached Yakoshima at 9.12, and there, about 4,000 feet ahead of us, was the Great Artiste, with its precious load. Uh, it was the, the plane that they, were, that they were riding in. I saw Lieutenant Godfrey and Sergeant Curry strap on their parachutes, and I decided to do likewise. We started circling. We saw little towns on the coastline, heedless of our presence. We kept circling, waiting for the third ship in our formation. The winds of destiny seemed to favor certain Japanese cities that must remain nameless. We circled about them again and again and found no opening in the thick umbrella of clouds that covered them. Destiny chose Nagasaki as the ultimate target. We flew southward down the channel and at 11.33 crossed the coastline and headed straight for Nagasaki, about 100 miles to the west. Here again we circled until we found an opening in the clouds. It was 12.01 and the goal of our mission had arrived. We heard the prearranged signal on our radio, put, our arc, put on our arc welder's glasses and watched tensely the maneuverings of the strike ship about half a mile in front of us. There she goes, someone said. Out of the belly of the artiste, what looked like a black object came downward. Captain Box swung around to get us out of range, but even though we were turning away in the opposite direction, and despite the fact it was broad daylight in our cabin... All of us became aware of a giant flash that broke, th- that broke through the dark barrier of our arc welder's glasses and flooded our cabin with an intense light. We removed our glasses after the first flash, but the light still lingered on, a bluish-green light that illuminated the entire sky all around. A tremendous blast wave struck our ship and made it tremble from nose to tail. 
This was followed by four more ba- four more blasts in rapid succession, each resounding like the boom of a cannon fire hitting our plane from all directions. Observers in the tail of our ship saw a giant ball of fire rise as though from the bowels of the earth, belching forth enormous white smoke rings. Next, they saw a giant pillar of purple fire 10,000 feet high, sc- shooting skyward with enormous speed. By the time our ship had made another turn in the direction of the atomic explosion, the pillar of purple fire had reached the level of our altitude. Only about 45 seconds had passed. Awestruck, we watched it shoot upward like a meteor coming from the earth instead of from outer space, becoming ever more alive as it climbed skyward through the white clouds. It was no longer smoke, or dust, or even a cloud of fire. It was a living thing, a new species of being, born right before our incredulous eyes. At one stage of its evolution, covering millions of years in terms of seconds, the intensity assumed the form of a giant square totem pole, with its base about three miles long, tapering off to about a mile at the top. Its bottom was brown, its center was amber, its top was white, but it was a living totem pole, carved with many grotesque masks grimacing at the earth. Then just when it appeared as though the thing had settled down in a state of permanence, There came shooting out of the top a giant mushroom cloud that increased the height of the pillar to a total of 45,000 feet. The mushroom top was even more alive than the pillar, seething and boiling in a white fury of creamy foam, sizzling upwards and then descending earthward. A thousand old faithful geysers rolled into one. It kept struggling in an elemental fury, like a creature in the act of breaking the bonds that held it down. In a few seconds, it had freed itself from its gigantic stem and floated upwards with tremendous speed, its momentum carrying it into the stratosphere to a height of about 60,000 feet. But no sooner did this happen when another mushroom, smaller in size than the first one, began emerging out of the pillar. It was as though the decapitated, it was as though the, de- the decapitated monster was growing a new head. As the first mushroom cloud floated off into the blue... It changed its shape into a flower-like flower-like form, its petal curving downward, creamy white outside, rose-colored inside. It still retained its shape when we last gazed at it from a distance of about 200 miles. Again, an eyewitness account of the bomb that was dropped in Nagasaki, which was one of two bombs um, that were dropped on the country of Japan. Um... And they were both developed in the Manhattan Project. Um, and the Manhattan Project was a, re- was a research and development undertaking during World War II that produced the first ner- nuclear weapons. So the first ever ones. These the, They tested a few, don't get me wrong, but these were the first ever nuclear weapons um, created. It was led by the United States with the support of the United Kingdom and Canada from 1942 to 1946. And of course the advent of nuclear weapons, you know, has completely changed the state of global politics. Early on, some political pundits or whatever, you know, some people theorized that, well, I guess not that many people, but the people in the know during the Manhattan Project, maybe some of the uh, politicians involved, theorized that potentially, um, nuclear war would bring this kind of like global peace in the sense that everyone has this opportunity to blow each other off the map. So everyone just has to kind of be like, all right, finally, everyone is equal. You know what I mean? In this weird kind of grotesque way, but 
they didn't really know. Um, so, you know, with the war happening and many different things happening in Germany, a lot of spy things, you know, a lot of, a lot of rumors that are going around the, the spy rings, um, saying that, you know, Germany was developing weapons of, of kind of mass destruction. Obviously up until this point, nuclear, nuclear physics and nuclear, um, like, fission and and using a new splitting an atom to use it as a weapon was basically a theoretical notion at this point only kind of theorized years earlier so no one really thought that that was necessarily something that they were working on but einstein in fact noticed that germany was starting to stockpile uranium and he thought with some of the information that he had potentially that's what they were trying to do we'll go into that in a second um, the project was also held like extremely secret. Um, most of the scientists that were at, and, and people, because there was like people working in factories, you know, all, all types of different, <clears throat> um, personnel that were actually working on this project. Um, they, they, like I said, most of them didn't even know what the project was for. They were fake towns, like essentially like secret towns that were created. Uh, for example, Oak Ridge, Tennessee. The entire population of Oak Ridge, Oak Ridge Tennessee was working on um, a Manhattan project. It was r- rural. You could kind of hide there. There was all kinds of different things happening, right? Um, at its peak, 130,000 people were working on the project, and it cost the U.S., uh, nearly $2 billion at the time, which is equivalent to about $24 billion in 2021, probably a little bit more now. Um, and over 90% of that cost was actually used for building factories and to produce the fissile, mis- uh, fissile material, uh, like the material used in the bombs, uh, with less than 10% for development and production of the weapons. So again, most of it was just the building materials to create the actual stuff that was going to was going to blow up research and production took place at more than 30 sites across the united states united kingdom and canada so uh leo sillard who is who is one of the one of the theoretic scientists that was that kind of came up with the idea that you could potentially use nuclear weapons uh, or use nuclear fission as a weapon um Ernest Rutherford of, of the Bohr-Rutherford model actually claimed that you probably can't split the atom. And that actually um, that actually prompted Leo Szilard to kind of like look more into this and say like, who's to say that you can't do that, right? The discovery of uh, nuclear fission by German chemists Otto Hahn and Fritz Strassmann in 1938 and its theoretical explanation by Lies Meitner and Otto Frisch made the development of the atomic bomb atomic bomb a theoretical possibility and like i said leo Siliard and Luigi and um hungarian born physicist eugene uh wigner wigner uh drafted the einstein Siliard letter which actually warned of the the potential a development of extremely powerful bombs of of a new type quote unquote it uh, urged the United States to take steps to acquire stockpiles of uranium ore and accelerate the research of Enrico Fermi and others into nuclear chain reactions. Like I said, uh, Einstein noticed that Germany had acquired all this uh, uranium from Czechoslovakia 
and it's kind of odd because in some of my research I, I had I had come across that one of the major reasons the Germans weren't putting all their all their eggs in the basket of, of, of nuclear science like the Allies were doing and the Russians were doing um, is because all the scientists that were actually working on a lot of nuclear sci- uh, nuclear science were Jewish and they didn't really believe that that was a feasible route slash that it was like a Jewish science. It was like very anti-Semitic and, and obviously very German approach, but that's actually a big reason why they didn't really go down because they probably, the, the minds that they had there, again, remember if you've seen my episode on operation paperclip, Germany still had all these great scientists that probably could have probably figured some of this stuff out. So who knows exactly what they were doing with that uranium? Interesting. Anyway, who knows? Maybe it was a little bit of a, a WMD scenario. But uh, after that, the U.S. created the Advisory Committee on Uranium and uh, started, again, putting way more effort into creating a nuclear weapon or putting more effort into nuclear science, at least, with the, th- with the hopes of creating a weapon. So scientists at the University of California determined that 5 to 10 pounds of U-235, which was like this other derivative of uranium, um... Uh, five to ten pounds of that element, its power output equals thirty uh, million pounds of gasoline. So if you were to blow up gasoline or TN and like it obviously the power uh, the power output is insane. Um the army director of the Manhattan Project was Major General Leslie R. Groves. Uh the U.S. government decided to go with the army because they were a little bit more uh, adept at at kind of dealing with these major, major, large scale um, projects, so to speak. And of course, Einstein was not necessarily a- attached to the program because I don't think he could pass like the security clearance because he was like kind of lefty and like from Austria and things like that. But his his equation e equals mc squared was actually majorly used in in determining how, how to actually create the bomb, which is fascinating. And um, they also recruited nuclear physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer of the, of, of the movie fame. Um, and he was, at the time, the director of the Los Alamos Laboratory that designed the bombs. He was extremely eclectic in his studies. You know, he studied Sanskrit and Buddhism and Hinduism. And um, he spoke spoke multiple languages could speak uh, read could read sanskrit would read the bhagavad gita had a copy of it like next to his bed but was also like heavily involved in u.s communism so again pre pre pre-world war ii there was like a united states uh, communist party and they well not necessarily communist party but you know communist society whatever you want to call it. But anyway, and you know, they were intellectuals, whatever you want to call them, people that were just interested in following the idea of communism and Marx at the time, because, you know, up until, up until then, the Soviet Union, I think was kind of, um, trying to do things, uh, a la Marx, but, no one really knew what was actually going behind the scenes and and kind of how bad it was. Again, that's the weirdest thing about communism. It always looks pretty pretty decent on paper, but it just never works in in, in practice. I think there's got to be a happy medium. I'm not sure what that is, but there's got to be. 
Um, essentially, the U.S. or or sorry, uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer's interest really lied in unlocking the secrets of the physical world. He really thought if he if he actually was able to figure out a way to um, split an atom and find out, you know, just a, again, we always have this really really interesting talking to my buddies at work about this today. We always have this really kind of interesting approach to figuring things out. It's kind of a little bit like even in science, even when it gets down to heavy-duty physics, like if you look at the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland and Zurich and all, the, or sorry, in Switzerland and like four other countries that they're in, um, we're basically just like smashing particles together to see what they're made of, right? So it's kind of like, how does this VCR work? I'm going to smash it. Like, how does this computer work? I want to sm- take it apart, maybe not necessarily as crudely with a hammer, Sometimes with a scalpel, sometimes with a more fine instrument, but we are essentially breaking something apart to look into it to see, you know, what's going on. It's just kind of this very physical, uh, almost blunt tactic, I find. And I think it's always funny, but that's just how we kind of have always figured things out. And we still do. So uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer saw this as an opportunity to potentially unlock some of those secrets um, again, this was a lot of the, a lot of the first bomb tests were, were being carried out in Los Alamos, New Mexico and the Los Alamos laboratory is actually where Bob Lazar worked. If you want to go back and check out our episode on Bob Lazar and, uh, and aliens, it's a pretty interesting, uh, interesting spot. And again, still in these early times before they were really figuring out, you know, or really this is before they dropped the bombs on Japan, you know. There was this thought: Could the bombs be a tool for peace? Could this be something that you, that we could use again to create this level playing field? That hey, everyone's going to be okay. Um, because when you look at it, we've we've brought this whole new power into the world. Yes, it can be used for bombs, but it can also be used for energy. It can also be used for medicine. It can also be used for all these different things that hopefully can bring this world peace and also this like general. It's a, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me, but I feel it's like if if every country essentially had nuclear bombs and could wipe everyone out, else out, that all technically cancels itself out and we're all just like equal. But I feel like as humans, just knowing humans, we just find another thing to to have a leg up and that's the fucking economy or whatever the fuck it is now. Like there's been, a, there's been nuclear bombs around for a long time. There's no fucking peace. So what the shit? Uh, William Lawrence, the the gentleman who um, I, I read the quote to start this episode. Um, sorry, the, the gentleman who wrote the quote that I read to start this episode uh, was a reporter. And he actually at some points was like had to be almost like detained by the military because this guy was such a good goddamn good reporter. And he found out so much stuff and he was like starting to starting to publish articles that were like kind of like giving away secrets and shit. Uh, it's funny the essentially the military like kind of like hired him to be like their in-house dude and he just like effectively stopped reporting so again that eyewitness account i read is an internal eyewitness account like from the military that that william lawrence wrote and again he was he was kind of like watching over the the development even when it was first being started in 1941 all the way to 1945 um the biggest issue, again, and William Lawrence almost kind of highlighted the, the idea that, hey, 
not a lot of this stuff was like purely, purely top secret. Like, yes, this is before cell phones. This is, this is before a lot of like surveillance and shit like that. But like, there's a lot of leaks. There's 130,000 people working for this thing. Like, yeah, not 130,000 people knew about it, but there's got to be quite a few people that do know. Even the idea that some of the people working on the project could have actually been Russian spies, right? Like, and the reason is that it's because there's probably American fucking spies working for Russia. Like, that's how all this shit works. You're like, hmm, we're going to go spy on them. I wonder if they're spying on us, vice versa, all this bullshit. Eventually, um, this all leads to, like I said, the testing at, at Los Alamos. Uh, in the first ever nuclear test, the Trinity test, per, uh, performed in Ju- uh, July 16th, 1945. Um, some feared that they could potentially, some of the scientists working on the project feared that they might potentially ignite the atmosphere because of how, how intense the explosion could be. They think it, they thought it would might just like ignite all the oxygen in the atmosphere or the nitrogen or whatever, just fucking every gasoline that exists. Uh, and then some also feared that it would like set off a chain reaction of nuclear reactions, which is pretty fucking nuts. Like, and kind of when you think about it, almost would make sense. Like, if you're gonna blow up one, if it doesn't take like a lot of energy to blow up one particular atom, and they're fucking everywhere, you can see like maybe if, if it, one goes off, all of a sudden every other one goes off. So again, this is all scientists basing things off fucking um theoretical shit that some people figured out but they made it happen so when they were going to fucking hit that button man they must have been shit in their pants i wonder if it was actually oppenheimer that touches the button but they must have been freaked out um when when uh when oppenheimer was interviewed about about the test um, he said, we knew the world would not be the same. Uh, a few people laughed. A few people cried. Most people were silent. I remind, I remember the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should, she should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-arm form and says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. So they kind of like were like, what have we kind of, what have we done? I'm really interested to see that in the movie again. It's going to be an intense fucking scene because again, like it's hard to really fathom because like, you know, it's become maybe a little bit of an image of pop culture, but like the nuclear bomb, man, like that was never seen before. Like, yeah, there was a lot of bombs big boom bombs, like U2 ones and like large TNT explosions that happened during the war and lots of artillery and things like that, but not one single bomb that's going to destroy an entire city like in a flash. Completely unheard of. <clears throat> um, so they had the fucking bomb and uh, the allies drafted the Potsdam Declaration. What's the Pot- Potsdam Declaration? Potsdam Defino. Sorry about that. But um, again, it was kind of saying, hey, you know, Japan, you guys got to fucking chill out or we're going to basically unleash some shit that you not even going to know what hit you. Uh, completely refused. Uh, Japan completely refused said declaration. And on August 6th and 9th, 1945, the U.S. and Allied forces 
dropped two bombs on the on the country of Japan. So August sixth, um, little boy was dropped by the Enola Gay on uh, onto Hiroshima. It's hard to determine real numbers because at the time, um, uh, Japan didn't have accurate numbers um, of the population, but more than half of the population of, of Hiroshima died that day. Um, in the in the original public address, FDR, the the president, Franklin Delano Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, the the president of the United States at the time uh, made a public address and and he called it uh, a, a military base. He's like the um, we we had dropped a bomb on the on the military base of Hiroshima. So I think they were kind of underplaying it. Again, there's so much fucking propaganda and like you talk about fucking PR and shit. Like holy fuck, World War Two, man. Like. There was, again, just think of any war today, like, there's still a lot of people against it, and, like, this was such a major thing, like, you still, you had, like, yeah, you had people supporting the boys, or, like, doing what you could to, like, keep the country rolling, but no one, not a lot of people really wanted this war to happen, right, so, again, especially, like, North America, like, yeah, Canada was inextricably tied with with, with the British forces, but, like, most of America was like, fuck them Europeans, man. We don't know anything about what's going on over there. Little did they know the threats of potentially world domination by the by Germans and the and the Axis powers if they got their shit together and didn't fuck up. But um like I said, there's always some type of PR spin to things. And Jap- Japan still refused to to relent. So three days later, um, on August 9th, Fat Man was dropped by boxcar onto Nagasaki, which in the in the eyewitness account I read at the beginning, there's some discrepancy with potentially the names of the planes, but um boxcar was the was the was the bomber that dropped Fat Man onto Nagasaki, and that was the eyewitness account that I read at the beginning of the of the episode. Supposed to be Kokura, which was like a a, a military or like a, industrial complex um but again the weather was unfavorable so they chose nagasaki luckily at the time most of nagasaki was evacuated i'm sure just with the with what had happened um uh in hiroshima that they got a lot of people but it was still about half the people were in nagasaki Uh, overall in both bombings 150,000 died in the blasts alone and then 150,000 died later of radiation in Nagasaki, it was kind of not as much damage because, in fact, the nearby hills absorbed most of the heat from the blast, which I thought was really interesting. And that was that must have been an interesting sight to see. I mean, some of this stuff is so anomalous. Like, fuck. It's, but it's so awful. Like, you never want to see any of the death, obviously. But about a week after the bombs, people started experiencing strange symptoms. No idea. Strange deaths. Um... Patients' bloods, patients' blood wouldn't clot. Their flesh essentially rotted off the bones. Seemingly healthy people were dropping dead for no reason. They attributed this to what they what they called disease X, or eventually the the atomic plague. Uh, the U.S. actually knew of the radiation from the bomb, but thought anyone who would get a lethal dose of it would die in the blast itself. 
Who's to say that's if that's a hundred percent true? Maybe they did have some information. Maybe they did know a little bit about uh, about the the lingering effects. And again, another another PR spin when Groves was uh, when Groves was um, was addressing or was um, whatever when Groves was telling people about uh, the second bombing, he decided decided to cover up the evidence of the atomic plague because they did do a study. They went to Nagasaki and and tried to see what the what the destruction was, which is like oddly clinical. Jesus. But again, Groves decided to not to to downplay the evidence of the atomic plague, which is kind of fucked. But again, like I don't think that this was something that a lot of American people were like super stoked about, right? Like they fucking wiped people out. But there was a chance, and this is what they said, and you never know if this is also a propaganda angle. If they didn't drop these bombs in Japan, Japan would have kept going. They would have had to do a mainland invasion of of Japan and probably lost a, a million, to, uh, another million boys. I think they would have had to do a one million man invasion or something of mainland Japan and maybe would have lost 500,000 people. Who knows? So they, they had to do this. They had to drop these bombs. Um, and... Again, it's it's hard to say if it's justified, right? Like the damage and just the lingering and, you know, people getting sick and, and uh, just all that shit. Was it worth it? Who knows? Uh, the U.S. actually asked Oppenheimer later to develop the hydrogen bomb, but he refused. Um, in 1953, Oppenheimer actually threatened to reveal a top secret plan. Like he was kind of like, you could tell he was kind of fucked up from all this stuff, like they, it seems in some ways they almost taught Oppenheimer to come up to come into this and maybe overlooked some of that like communist and weird past to let him in because eventually Oppenheimer had to test in front of, testify in front of McCarthy and uh, during the second Red Scare they called it Oppenheimer's stances together with his past association with the Communist Party led to the revocation of his security clearance following a 1954 security clearing. Uh, hearing sorry this effectively ended his access to the government's atomic secrets and thus his career as a nuclear physics physicist so that's that's weird shady he ended up saying you know we have we've made a thing a most terrible weapon that has altered abruptly and profoundly the nature of the world we've made a thing that by all standards of the world we grew up in is an evil thing and by doing so by our participation in making it possible to make these things, we have raised again the question of whether science is good for man or whether it is good to learn about the world, to try and understand it, to try to control it, to help give the world of men increased insight, increased power. Because we are scientists, we must say an, an unalterable yes to all these questions. It is our faith and our commitment, seldom made explicit, even more seldom challenged, that knowledge is good in itself, knowledge and such power as must come with it. So there's that. Again, it's Uncle Ben. With great power comes great responsibility. With great power comes great responsibility. Knowledge is power. And they fucking created some crazy shit. And not to get too far into some of the weirdo wacko stuff. But, um, you know, obviously... The atomic race was only heating up after World War II because the Soviets were were able to create their own 
atomic bombs. So is it did the US drop the drop the bombs to kind of send a message to Russia as well? Who knows? Because obviously the Russians then had their own nuclear weapons as well. And there are some theories that potentially high-ranking members of the Manhattan Project actually spied for the Soviets and helped them develop their own bombs. Again, there's a lot of leaks here and there. Some people even think Oppenheimer himself with these with these communist ties, he might have had something to do with that. Who knows? Um there's a there was a lot of like nuclear like a nuclear um when you're making a lot of the nuclear uh fissile pieces like the pieces of the of the nuclear bomb fluoride actually turned out to be um uh, a byproduct of such and there was like a nearby farm and shit that was getting all fucked up by this fluoride factory around then at the same time the project was going on so it's kind of like coincidence maybe not and also a lot of people again this happened in los like a lot of the original tests happened in los los alamos new mexico and what what happened around there heavy duty alien activity so there's a really good chance that potentially some of this some of the shit that they did in this project essentially creating the nuclear bomb attracted aliens and attracted extraterrestrial beings in to be like what are these fucking monkeys up to here fucking around again we're like you know potentially only like a couple hundred thousand years away from being chimps and we're like creating nuclear weaponry all of a sudden if anyone around here is more smarter than us i'd be coming to check in on this too actually in fact there's some there was some astronaut he was actually one a part of one of the apollo missions to the moon and he essentially claimed that the the trinity tests and all the other nuclear bombs since essentially alert these interdimensional beings and when every time we blow up one of these bombs it like disrupts their their shit and they're like intertemporal too so they actually like travel time again this guy predicted that the that there'd be a, a comet that hits the world in 2006 and as far as we know no comet has such hit yet so who knows take it with a grain of salt Bottom line is, obviously, all this stuff really did change the world. And who knows what kind of guilt all those people lived with. And who knows what the movie's going to cover with all this stuff, right? So if you've seen the movie, hit us up in the comments. Let me know if there's any shit that they covered or any stuff I talked about that they didn't cover. But uh, thanks again for listening so much. I really appreciate you guys taking the time to be here with me. I love being here with you. Hit us up on our DMs at the Big Mark Pod at the Big Mark Podcast. Check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash the Big Mark Pod. Um, give us a five-star review. Like and subscribe to the channel. Tell your friends. Go check out some more history. Talk to you soon. Peace. <laughs>